Sadly, we know that we have lost Oklahomans to, to this virus, and we know and can anticipate that this will continue to happen. What's going to change the game and keep things moving in the right direction at this point is really individual action. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, um, but I'm just here to tell Oklahomans we are going to get through this. I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier, and this is COVID-19 in Oklahoma, a daily podcast bringing you the latest info and insight into how the coronavirus is impacting our state. Through interviews and conversations, this podcast is about context and clarity during this challenging time. Today is Sunday, April 5th. On today's episode, I speak with Oklahoma City Councilwoman Jo Beth Hammond about her call for alternate care shelter sites for those experiencing homelessness who may need additional care during the coronavirus pandemic. I also ask her about her role as a council member during this crisis. But first, here's a review of the latest coronavirus news. On Saturday, the State Department of Health reported a total of 1,159 confirmed positive cases of COVID-19 in Oklahoma. The agency also reported an additional four deaths, bringing the statewide total to 42. There are also now 316 confirmed coronavirus hospitalizations in the state. Also making news, Oklahoma City-based retail craft store giant Hobby Lobby announced Friday that it will close all of its remaining stores and furlough nearly all store employees and a large portion of its corporate and distribution employees, effective on Friday. You can read more from the Frontier's Clifton Adcock at readfrontier.org. Also on Friday, a telephone court hearing was held to hear arguments in a lawsuit challenging Governor Kevin Stitt's temporary ban on abortion during the coronavirus pandemic. According to The Oklahoman, federal judge Charles Goodwin did not issue a ruling Friday in response to a request from the Center for Reproductive Rights and other abortion rights groups seeking a temporary restraining order to halt Stitt's executive order that disallowed most abortions through April 30th. Because of age, health conditions, and a lack of access to shelters, people who are experiencing homelessness may be more at risk from the COVID-19 pandemic. Across the country, government leaders and shelters are looking for ways to help keep those experiencing homelessness safe. In California and New York, government-paid hotel rooms are being provided for homeless people, including those released from jail under emergency orders designed to reduce crowding in local jails that could spark a spread of the coronavirus. According to the Marshall Project, With COVID-19 cases rising, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order that includes $50 million to lease hotel rooms or buy travel trailers for homeless people, including those released from jail. On Friday, Oklahoma City Councilwoman Jo Beth Hammond sent a letter to Governor Kevin Stitt in support of activating the National Guard in response to an application submitted by multiple agencies serving people experiencing homelessness in Oklahoma City. The request is for medical personnel to staff up to four alternate care shelter sites that would increase social distancing, provide professional care, and health screening, ensuring early detection, isolation, and care when needed to those currently living outside. Councilwoman Hammond was elected in 2019, and she spoke with me about her request. So the sites that they they are planning, they have the sites 
the infrastructure of them identified. They have a few shelters that have the space to kind of section off the capacity that they're looking for to um, shelter people, particularly people who are in those really vulnerable categories that also live outside. So if they're older, um, have, you know, pre, pre-existing respiratory or other illnesses, um, they would be kind of the priority to be, be in just these kind of quarantine areas and these shelters to get out of the elements, um, uh, have, have medical care available if needed, um, and then just have those, you know, basic resources of the shelter food to, to keep them healthy and, and distance. Cause right now it's a lot of folks who live outside, um, are living in pretty close quarters with one another, even if they're able to kind of distance from the community at large. Um, you know, if one person in a, in, you know, a small camp has it, then it's, it's pretty easy without proper hygiene and access to, you know, running water, et cetera, to be able to, to catch to catch it and just, you know, let it, let it spread through a, through a small community. So um, this group of advocates was looking for a solution to, to get some quarantine and some space um, to house, house these folks. And originally they went to the medical reserve Corps of Oklahoma um, to request those, those medical personnel and staffing for the site. Um, but as I, as I can would have imagined they're pretty overloaded and, and didn't have any available volunteers to be able to, to staff the request. So their next um, step was to work with the city's emergency management department and put in an application um, to the national guard, essentially to the state to deploy um, national guard uh, folks who are in that kind of medical personnel space. I know they have a lot of, doctors or nurses who are part of the National Guard. Um, so, so that was their ask was um, just for the, sta- the, the basic staffing, uh, because right now um, they have, like I said, they have the two, two locations as of now identified that could be just that. I think they can house about 40 people each. Um, and then they want to identify an, a third and a fourth location to be able to, to, of course, they're going to do that kind of triage of, you know, the people who are most vulnerable um, or maybe already exhibiting symptoms, but then they want to be able to extend that to more people just, again, for that social distance, um, particularly to just keep people who might otherwise be sleeping and living in pretty close quarters with one another to allow a little more distance, access to that, um, you know, preventative hygiene, running water kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You talk about the opportunity for spread within the homeless community, especially those that may be living without shelter. And I think a lot of people probably kind of view that population as isolated anyway. So it's kind of easy to assume that, well, that quarantine part is down. But as you mm-hmm. talk about, a lot of these members of the community are, are kind of clustered together. So it's, it's so, so the opportunity for spread may be at, at a higher risk within this population. Yeah, and that's what one of the first asks I had of um, our city manager was um, to to see, to request if they, they could, the police department could stop doing any, and the city county health department is part of this process as well, but to do any um, breakdown breakdowns of camps. Because usually what will happen, especially if it's on, private property, someone's camping, um, the county health department and the police enforce essentially a, a cleanup of the site and, and kind of move folks 
Um, and originally when this started, one of my biggest concerns was that was not just, of course, like displacing people in the midst of this is, is again, like one of those opportunities for spread, but also for those, you know, city, county, and um, it's the, the police, but they also contract with a, um, with a cleanup uh, crew um, so that all of those folks are just getting potentially exposed to, um, to surfaces, to, um, you know, because they might be cleaning up old, you know, blankets or other possessions that maybe folks left behind when they moved on. Um, but then that other piece of, you know, if, if they, you know, a lot of these folks are relying on one another for support and protection. So they do, there are some folks that live in community that, you know, a lot of folks, um, or a good amount of folks do maybe are kind of alone and, and maybe camp and kind of move around on their own, but a fair number of people, um, and I know the homeless Alliance has relationships with a lot of the more established camps that are, um, in the area that, you know, just that community is just like anyone, it provides protection and sharing of resources and all of that. And so, um, you know, those folks are still, you know, interacting with outreach workers. They, you know, can still go to the grocery store if they have some money. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's just a lot of opportunity to, to carry that, not just through the homeless community, but also through the community at large. Um, and particularly because it, a lot of folks that experience homelessness are in that kind of vulnerable category um, of other co-occurring illnesses, um, as well as, you know, just that access to running water is, um, is we could just see as like so crucial <laughs> that yeah. to be able to do any of the prevention measures that are recommended. Um, if you do, if you don't have access to water, you're, you're kind of, you're done before you begin. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So when it comes to these sites, you say that the, the biggest barrier right now is just having the staff is that's kind of the last missing piece to make these a reality. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, what I, when I communicated with the kind of the person who's been, updating me on kind of where they are. Um, Cause even as they submitted the application to the state after kind of hearing from the reserve Corps that they um, didn't have the, the personnel um, they were already working on other like contingency plans in the event that, um, that those staff didn't get, get uh, activated. So um, right now I under, my understanding is that they're trying to work on uh, accessing funding to essentially just hire <laughs> hire people that um, nurses and other medical personnel that could staff those locations as well as some non-medical personnel that, um, that they just need to, you know, staff them, but maybe don't need to be doing the medical care side of things. Um, so they, and, and it's kind of up in the air right now as to whether that's going to become available. And the thing that I heard from them was that just every day they've had a new, idea for a plan that's just fallen through just over and over again for the last week. Um, and that's where I finally kind of was like, okay, I guess I'm going to go rogue and, and just make this an issue. Cause, um, cause we just, I know they've been working the, all those organizations have been responded so immediately to figure out, you know, how do they continue services while, while still keeping distance and following all the guidelines. Um, so, cause they knew that, you know, at the day shelter, um, at the homeless Alliance, I think it was the second, second day of that first week where, 
the end, you know, they sent everyone home from the Thunder game and everything started to feel a little bit real. They really started implementing that some measures to try to keep some distance and, um, and limit, uh, limit any contact kind of at that point, it was, you know, trying to keep numbers small, but they had like 400 people at the day shelter that day. Um, because that's how many people come through on a regular basis and are accessing resources from email and, you know, looking for jobs or, or what have you to just like the basics of food and uh, food clothing and, um, and hygiene. So um, they, after that day, they just immediately recognize we've got to figure out a different model because this is not going to work both for our staff, but also if, you know, if one person gets it and they're in a room with 300 people, um, you know, we just, we know that that's really dangerous. So that's when they started working on these alternative I think they're calling them alternative care sites um, to try to have something in in motion so that knowing that they couldn't, um, you know, accept the, the same number of people to come into the day shelter um, or, you know, even at City Rescue Mission, I know they've been really limiting um, during their meal service, you know, how many people can come in at a time to get their meals. A lot of them have been transitioning to all to go um meals and support so to just limit how many people are coming into the facilities um and so these alternate care sites would be a really big um deal to be able to support just taking the load off of all those nonprofits that are currently trying to figure out how do they pack 300 lunches to go try to deliver them out in the community um when you could have you know maybe 100 people that are kind of in that highest risk category in a shelter and just looked after and cared for and supported um, so that they can kind of take care of that next level of folks um, doing all of the measures that they've been putting in place. Yeah. You know, your, your campaign last year was seemed to really be focused on kind of uh, those in the city who maybe have been overlooked in a variety of ways. So I know you've done a lot of work with the homeless community, but also those just, you know, the working class members of the city Mm -hmm. of which this economic crisis that has been caused has really hit pretty hard. What what are some other er, things that you're hearing or, or what are some other things that we maybe we need to be aware of in terms of how this this community at large is being impacted that that may be getting overlooked with with some of in some of the coverage? Yeah. Um, you know, I, the other piece that um, like I've been thinking about a lot, and it's interesting because it, it relates to the homeless community. But now with, like you said, that Im- economic like ripple um, is just kind of at levels we've never seen. Um, but that um, inability to pay for rent or mortgage and possibly being evicted or foreclosed on um, is something else that I've really been trying to like pin down <laughs> yeah. how we um, how we support people in that space. Because I know um, even just a lot of my friends that work in like the service industry that were servers or bartenders, I mean, already we're kind of living on poverty wages. And in general, we know that a lot of renters and even low-income homeowners in the state um, are housing burden where they're paying more than 30% of their income on housing. And now, you know, if they don't have shifts, if their job is essentially they got laid off for whatever reason related to coronavirus, um, there's just, I've talked to a few of our kind of housing advocate lawyer community, you know, people from legal aid and the different kind of low income um, legal resource clinics. Um, and they all are just 
waiting for kind of this flood of evictions and people getting kicked out of their housing because they can't pay rent or foreclosed on because they can't pay their mortgage. Um, but it's all just related to this kind of economic ripple. So um, the one thing that I've been talking with people about is how do we get kind of an eviction moratorium, a foreclosure moratorium to give people that space that all of this, you know, assistance that is supposed to be coming, you know, from the state and federal level down to our local level, um, like give that the chance to get here (laughs) so that people can pay those bills um, without, you know, and and my understanding is uh, that people are still potentially filing evictions in Oklahoma County. um, But I know definitely in some other counties um, it's like way, way more. Um, And it's a, you know, I think there's a bit of a question as to how much of that is potentially related directly to the COVID crisis and how much of that was just maybe issues that were in motion prior, um, prior to this all happening. Um, but everything I've heard from our, uh, kind of that housing advocacy community, um, is, you know, we were already in kind of an eviction crisis in our state, Tulsa and Oklahoma city particularly have pretty high eviction rates kind of per capita across the country. Um, and that this is just, you know, we're kind of asking for a, a greater flood of that um, if we don't have some the moratoriums in place to give people that that space for these like various um, I know there's some um, obviously like the stimulus checks or small business grants and loans that are coming around um, but also even in the payroll protection program I think is going to be really helpful but I know even talking to my full-time job at the main organization I work for is applying for that payroll protection program. Um, and I mean, that's just, it's such a bear <laughs> to yeah. apply for um, that it's going to take a while for that to reach us. And so, you know, we're already in April. What happens when May's bills come due? Um, if, if people are uh, still not getting that money to, to their, to into their pockets and maybe they're already kind of in that, category of being kind of vulnerable, didn't have a lot of savings available. Um, you know, it just, it just begs the question, like, you know, are we going to have any protections in place for those folks so that, um, so that they're going to get that runway to be able to get this aid down from, you know, various, um, various channels. You know, there's, there's a lot of focus on state officials and, and like the governor and, and, and mayors when it comes to like Tulsa and Oklahoma City, but what's, and you've already addressed this some, but what's your role been as a city council member during this pandemic? Um, I Mostly it feels like it's really been just resource triage, resource sharing, um, because as you know, as far as just an individual council member, I don't have a lot of like legal authority to make decisions that like, you know, how the mayors can make these um, emergency orders under certain provisions. Um, but, you know, I think from, from my perspective, what I've been able to see, see you know, myself as, as a resource to, to share information about what's available, um, you know, for as far as support, um, you know, I was, uh, and then, well, and then on the other end, just an advocate for the things that I'm hearing, um, because especially from, uh, you know, the, like, information has changed like, you know, a million miles a minute in the last couple of weeks that, um, you know, even just information about like the, the, uh, the food program that the public school rolled out, yeah. um, you know, making sure that if people are 
contacting me asking. I had actually had a uh, a landlord um, from the south side contact my office asking. You know, I have a lot of low income renters whose I know their kids really depend on um, on school, breakfast, and lunch. And and this was like right at the beginning of everything happening, um, where schools were maybe going to get closed and. Um, he was like, I just don't know what to tell them as far as like how to make sure they can feed their kids. Um, and so like that was, you know, I sort of felt like my role was, okay, let me go find that information so I can share it with the people that are, um, you know, asking. And then if I'm hearing needs that are, um, that I'm not finding any resources for trying to track down what, you know, if there are any, and if not, who do we need to talk to to make those resources happen? Um, and so in, in many ways, that's sort of like what I generally feel like council members' roles are um, kind of on a larger scale of like, you know, again, it's like we really only have a lot of policy power as a body, um, but in our individual capacities, we can really be a resource and, um, and be a voice for people um, when, when there are needs we're hearing about that aren't being met. And I, you know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with Councilman Nice and Councilman Cooper over the last few weeks, kind of in that vein about like, they'll, they'll say, Oh, I just heard about this, you know, thing or someone, you know, I had someone call or email and ask about X, Y, Z. Have you heard of anything? And so just trying to, even among ourselves and the council trying to say, here's something that I heard was available in case you're hearing, um, you know, from people. Yeah. There's been a lot of conversation about what is the appropriate steps for cities and states to take when it comes mm-hmm. to shelter in place orders and and those kind of things. Uh, the gov- the mayor has, has taken action over the last week or so. Uh, have you supported the, the steps that Mayor Holt has taken? I mean, do you feel like the city is doing enough? Is there more to be done? Just kind of what's what's your perspective on this topic? Yeah, I've been incredibly grateful um, for his, especially taking those additional steps of um, I know originally it was kind of just bars, uh, you know, the to go for restaurants and things, but then finally coming to really clarify this last week, um, like this, the shelter in place language, um, as much as it, you know, it was funny when he texted to say, Hey, here's, I'm, I'm going to do this. There's going to be a press, re- press conference later today. Um, it's funny that like so much of that was just a language change. There was like literally almost no legal, change about what you know was kind of uh, fell under that but just being able to say shelter in place versus you know i think what was the the governor's is like a safer um, a, a safer it's more like a recommendation but just that language change i think is so important because i think it does kind of it flips the switch in people's minds and um and i i say this a lot um but like language really does matter and so you know i was really grateful that he took that step to just to say, no, this is what we're going to call it. <laughs> so that, cause it really, people will take it, take it differently. Um, and in general, I do feel like the city's response has been really, um, really impressive. Um, you know, I, when this all started kind of happening and, uh, one of the things I was immediately knew that the city had authority about over that maybe, um, again, it's like, I couldn't make that decision by myself, but I could, you know, I followed up with the city manager to ask, do we know about, you know, cause there was all this originally, it's like, you know, cough into your elbow, wash your hands. And I know that, you know, there are people that have trouble paying their water bill. So I contacted the city manager and asked, you know, are we considering a moratorium on shutoffs 
for an ability to pay for water. And um, when I finally, uh, I think it was that next Tuesday, I was at council um, and uh, for our like last council meeting that we had in person prior to this last one that we had in uh, via telephone. And, um, and I ran into our uh, utilities director and he was like, we were because they they had finally gone public with that's what they were doing. But he was like, we started we we stopped doing it a week ago. <laughs> he was like already way ahead of me um, in in that that you know I think it was a Tuesday before the the Thunder game that they sent everyone home. They had already been in conversation about that because they cut, they sort of saw it coming around the bend. Um, so you know, I, in a lot of ways, a lot of our city staff have been just incredibly responsive and proactive, even. You know, our parks department, you know, making that, uh, really taking it seriously about um, getting playgrounds closed. But there are even, um, the parks department has stepped up to provide childcare for any of our city staff or first responders that um, are still needing to go to work but need somewhere for their kids to um, be. And the, they're following all the, you know, less than 10 and trying to get them spread out around the city at different um, locations. So, in many ways, I feel like the city um, has been doing everything, you know, within its power, um, both on like the individual staff level, but um, but even at those like you know administrative leadership levels to try to figure out ways to keep business running. Um, you know, like we still need water, we still need uh, like you know all of the the basics to you know that we need the the buses to run, um, but they've all really responded to trying to figure out how to. Um, how to fit as best as possible within the guidelines while still, um, while still keeping things, you know, essential, you know, essential services still running, you know, making sure people's trash is picked up, but maybe right now we're not going to, you know, get out of the the truck and do any, um, you know, bulk, uh, what is it? The, um, like I think the, they put the bag a, trash. Yeah. The bag trash. Yeah. So there's like, put everything in your bins. We're not, you know, we don't want to expose our employees to, um, to having to touch any bags. So just stuff like that. I've been really grateful that they've, you know, tried to figure out, you know, how do we adapt, but um, still provide a lot of those crucial services. Yeah. Well, you say compared to other elected officials, you may not have as much policy power, but it, it definitely seems like in your role, you're a lot closer down to the, to the, to the street level to kind of be in the, in the thick of hearing, you know, what are these issues that may be getting overlooked and where do we need to have our attention? So uh, councilwoman, really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And that is, you know, it is one of those, like, in the, that comparison of, like, I might, you know, I'm not at the federal level where I can vote on a stimulus or a relief package, but um, even just the getting people the information that maybe don't have a lot of other channels to learn about that, um, just making, you know, sharing that out and making sure there's another um, person promoting it and, and saying, you know, if you need help applying for that, let me know. Cause even if I can't do it, I can contact, I can connect you with someone who can support you in that, you know, is, uh, I, I always, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm a little champion for, uh, for local government. Cause it is, it can be so effective, even if, you know, we, like you said, we don't have a lot of, of that, um, decision-making power necessarily, but we can always be loud advocates if we need to be. <laughs> On Monday, Oklahoma Public Schools will launch distance learning programs as school buildings across the state will remain closed for the rest of the academic year. 
through interviews with dozens of teachers and district leaders. The Frontier found some districts plan to move lessons and projects online, including in some schools that have already adopted personalized learning programs that students work through on school-issued laptops or tablets. In other districts, the most students may receive are worksheet packets, storybooks, and directed to watch public television programming that is being reoriented for students at home. Also, nine nursing home facilities have reported confirmed cases of COVID-19, including a facility in Norman with 36 confirmed cases. The Frontier's Cassie McClung has a story at readfrontier.org on the impact the virus is having on nursing homes, which includes a list of impacted facilities across the state. That's going to do it for today's episode. You can find complete COVID-19 coverage at readfrontier.org. If you found this podcast helpful, then I'd ask you to leave a rating, share it on social media, or tell a friend. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Stay safe and healthy. I'll be back with you on Monday.